Hello there. Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk Podcast, a center for human rights podcast series exploring a range of human rights issues through conversations with academics, practitioners, and activists. I am your host, Victoria Amici. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. I'm with Dr. Ramet, the Chief Prosecutor for the United Nations International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals. He's an academic, he's a jurist. I would like you to please introduce yourself. I'm already sure if I've covered everything about you. So I would like to ask more information about yourself and the kind of thing that you do as the Chief Prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Sure. So my name is Serge Bramertz. Um, I'm from Belgium. I've been a prosecutor for the last 30 years, 15 years at the domestic level, mainly dealing with international organized crime, trafficking human beings, drug trafficking, but also terrorism. And the last 15 years in the international domain, first at the Yugoslav Tribunal, then dealing with the Hariri investigation in Lebanon, where the former prime minister had been assassinated, where I was in charge of a UN investigation commission. And um, the last six years at the prosecutor of this so-called residual mechanism, which is the successor organization, the successor tribunal of the Rwanda tribunal and the Yugoslavia tribunal. Perfect. I would like to follow up on that introduction. What are the most complex criminal cases the IRMCT, that's the international residual mechanism has actually came across and how are you able to move above those challenges? I mean, the residual mechanism took over the remaining functions, right? So one of the remaining functions was to finalize the trial and appeals proceedings in relation to General Mladic, who has in the meantime been convicted to a life sentence. He was one of the masterminds behind the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina in the mid-90s, where, you know, his soldiers were very much responsible for ethnic cleansing campaigns for the siege of Sarajevo, uh, but also for the uh, genocide in Srebrenica, where within a few weeks, more than 8,000 men and boys were were killed. And more recently, um, this is what brings me to, to South Africa, is the more recent arrest of one of our main fugitives, Kaishima, who been indicted many years ago for killing of more than 2,000, um, mainly women and children. You just talked about the recent arrest of Kaishima. I was just at the lecture where you talked about how it's very challenging to arrest very powerful fugitives that are recognized as national heroes in your lands. How does this impact the pursuit of justice? Well, there are still more than 1,200 fugitives in relation to the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. So it's still a lot of work to be done. But it's really step by step. So each individual arrest brings um, justice to an important group of, of survivors. So after the arrest of Kaishima two months ago, we went last week to the village where he committed these crimes for the survivors and the victims. It was a big relief to know that the one who was responsible for the killing, the assassination, the murder of their loved ones finally has been arrested and will face justice. Interesting. The mechanism has been receiving a lot of requests for assistance than ever before to 
deliver justice at the local level? Because you talked about the future of justice has a domestic future. So what are the collaborative measures the mechanism has with national judicial bodies to enhance accountability and ensure that the legacy of international criminal justice continues beyond? You know, our tribunals and also the mechanism has been put in place, has been created by the Security Council based on uh, Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, which in fact says that all countries have to cooperate with the mechanism. So there is for all member states of the United Nations a legal obligation to provide cooperation when we request it. Now, we are also providing a lot of cooperation to other countries, right? As I said earlier, we are in a phase where there are only very few cases still pending at our tribunal. So we are today mainly providing assistance to prosecutors in the former Yugoslavia because we have more than 10 million pages of documents in relation to the conflict in the former Yugoslavia and in relation to the genocide in Rwanda we have more than 1 million pages of documents uh, available so those are very important databases which needs to be used also in the future for domestic procedures to make sure that justice is served. So it's still an important role to play. I like to say sometimes that, you know, for many years, those attack tribunals, were in, we were in the driver's seat, not really being at the forefront of prosecutions. Today, we are much more in the back seat because our cases are done, but we are still providing support as there are several thousands of cases still ongoing at the domestic level. That's interesting. I was there at the lecture. One of the participants, he posed a question about the image and the future of the ICC and the tribunals and the mechanisms. And it takes longer time to get results. And sometimes people lose hope in getting justice. Is there any capacity processes to engage and build on the image of, of these tribunals and mechanisms? Justice is a very slow process. Right. When we look at international criminal justice, uh, very often uh, time plays an important role. You know, as lawyers, we learn at university, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. But in terms of international justice, it's very, very different because someone who is powerful today making a prosecution impossible, well, perhaps five years, 10 years, 30 years later, he is not anymore an important individual and you can get him. And this is, I think, the important message also with the arrest of Kaishima. Well, it has taken a long time, a very long time. But at the end of the day, justice prevails. Fugitives can hide for a long period, but ultimately they are arrested. This is really the, the important message. The next question is, are the whole point of those mechanisms to ensure justice? How do we ensure that the mechanisms engage with the victims of these war crimes? And how do you encourage victim participation the process of finding justice? I mean, victims are obviously the most important part of our work, right? They remind us every day why our work is still relevant, why it is important, and why we have to fight for them. Because we, de facto, represent the survivors and victims before the international tribunals as prosecutors. And that's why last week I, I went to see the survivors and the victims, because I know what it means meets for them. Now, at the ad hoc tribunals, like for the mechanism, there is no direct participation for victims. Um, so there's no scheme for reparations or um, victims' compensation. But this still exists at the national level. So in cases where individuals have been convicted for international crimes before international tribunal, it's uh, in some cases gives uh, the opening to start uh, compensation trials at the domestic level. Now, this has come to the end of the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Bromitz for taking time out of your evening to come on this podcast and hope to see you back in South Africa sometime soon. Thanks for having me. You have just listened to the Africa Rights Talk podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Do not forget to subscribe, 
to our YouTube channels, social media platforms such as Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening.